think I'll just read chapter 6. I'll allude to other texts around chapter 6, but I'll just read the whole chapter and we'll pray. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free... From sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you, of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you'd please come and help us to understand it now. And I pray that you'd help us to live and walk in the reality that's being set forth in this passage of Scripture. Help your servant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're still technically considering the Confession, chapter 13, paragraph 1, on sanctification. And so I want to begin by touching on some of the main points that we discussed two Lord's Days ago as we begin to consider this doctrine. First, the definitions that we opened up with. To sanctify means to make holy. Holy means literally cut. The idea of holiness means separate from what is common. It means set apart. And so to sanctify, to make holy, is to take something that is now common and cut it off from the common and set it apart as now uncommon. To cut something apart from and use it for something else. And in that concept of sanctification, we have to always keep this in mind, that there is a from and there is a or an unto, always. A negative, from, cut off, and a positive, unto, for. If we are to sanctify God as holy in our hearts, we have to separate Him from everything else that's common, but also we have to think of Him rightly and consider Him as we ought to consider Him. Sanctification, then, is the act, and this is just a general definition based on these words, the act whereby something is set apart from common use for special use. Now, the Scriptures and our confession following the Scriptures do not approach sanctification as, one, merely a process, or two, a process that begins on neutral ground or that starts at zero. Rather, when dealing with sanctification, we're dealing with a group of people who've already experienced a definitive break from the old way. And now we're talking about people who are walking in a new way. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's been a once-for-all moment in time act of God whereby you are set apart for Him forever. No longer common, now for His use. And we call that definitive sanctification. And that's where we have to begin if we're going to understand the process of sanctification. We're not starting on some undefined conveyor belt of a process that some people might get on and some people might not get on. We start with a radical metamorphosis of nature that then issues forth in an ongoing transformation of every part of a man to the point that in glory 
your nose and your earlobes are going to be transformed. It's going to be completely, uh, a completely, a complete radical metamorphosis of the entire person in the end. We'll get a new physical body. Some people refer to glorification as final sanctification or completed sanctification. So then we pick up, and I want to read to you that first statement from the confession again. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, and then notice this phrase, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. And I gave you some homework. I gave you two weeks to come up with the answer to this question. What exactly do the death and resurrection of Christ have to do with one being definitively sanctified? That's the question. And I want to try to make an attempt to answer that question tonight. Now I'm going to lean heavily and unapologetically on the work of John Murray on sanctification. If I, I've told several of you, if I could just stand here and read it, I would. It's spectacular. I'm praying that the Lord will allow me to at least convey a little bit of what he says. And the way that he comes about this concept of sanctification... Again, the question, what exactly do the death and resurrection of Christ have to do with being definitively sanctified? To answer that, I want to start with a little bit more recap. What was it that happens, we talked about this, what happens at the very outset of our salvation that makes the change wrought in us so definitive? What took place? Go back to the confession. We're united to Christ effectually called and regenerated. All of those things are a moment in time events that change a person down to the very nature of their being. Now let's think of two of those, effectual calling. In a moment of time, we are called by the Father from death to life. Sort of displayed in the picture of Christ calling forth Lazarus. The very word of His mouth gave the life that he was commanding from Lazarus. That's a picture of the effectual call. We're called from death to life. And regeneration is the giving of that new life, the new heart, the new spirit. We often refer to it as a new principle of spiritual life. So the Father calls from death to life. The Spirit comes and gives the very life that the Father is calling. Now, both of those are positive. Anytime you go from death to life, that's a good thing. That's positive. But remember, sanctification is both negative and positive. So where is the negative aspect of that initial part of salvation? If sanctification encompasses both a cutting from and a separating unto, where's the negative? Well, the answer is, is found when we study more intently, more deeply, we could say, fold back some of the layers of the first phrase, they who are united to Christ. So what is union with Christ? Again, it's the joining of believers with Christ by the Holy Spirit in such a way that His actions have a specific bearing on our lives. So Christ acted for us. He acted in our place so that His actions are transferable to our account. Why? Because there is a union that began even prior to His acting. There was some kind of legal covenant union, a federal union, where His actions could actually be counted to our account. Just like if a husband goes to 
cash his wife's check or vice versa. The wife goes to cash the husband's check. Her name is on the account. Why? Because they're married. She can carry out that transaction. It's the same here. There was a legal objective union so that Christ's actions were for us, transferable to our account. Now, if I were to ask any Christian, what are the two staple components of Christ's work without which all of His other work would be absolutely useless, hopefully you would say His death and resurrection. Negative and positive. That's where we get this phrase in the confession, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. So here's what I want to try to prove to you tonight or, or show you. In the light of our union with Christ, in His death and resurrection, we see most clearly that sanctification is first and foremost a definitive moment in time, once and for all act of God. In light of our union with Christ, in His death and in His resurrection, understanding that, we then must conclude that sanctification is first and foremost a once-for-all moment in time, definitive act of God. And I think all of that is in this phrase, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. So let me define some terms first. Through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. The word through... Has, carries the sense of by means of. By means of the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Now, that word virtue, that's where we kind of get caught up. It's not a virtue or not a word that we use very often. And there are several ways we could take it. For example, in 2 Peter 1.5, in the ESV, we have this verse. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And the word virtue there means goodness or moral excellence. You've probably heard people say patience is a virtue. Patience is a, a morally excellent character trait to have. That's one way that this word could be used. I don't think that's what it means here. I don't think that our confession is saying that through the morally excellent character of what Christ did, that somehow we are sanctified. So consider another use of this term. Remember that our confession was drafted in the 17th century. We also have scripture that was translated in the 17th century. The King James Version of, I want to read, just read to you Luke chapter 8, verses 43 to 46. And a woman having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him, that's Jesus, and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her issue of blood staunched. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee, and sayest thou who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue has gone out from me. That word virtue is the very same word that used, that's used in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the dunamis, the power 
of God. Very same word here. Christ says, I perceive, I felt effectual power go out of me. And it healed her. He wasn't even paying attention. And it healed her. He felt it. I think that's the way that our confession is using this term virtue. That's the way it was understood in the 17th century. An effectual power. By means of the effectual power of Christ's death. And there we're talking about His actual physical death. A moment in time, definitive act where He yielded up His spirit and His spirit left His physical body. He died. And then there's Christ's resurrection. Again, His actual bodily resurrection. It happened at a moment in time. Nobody was there to see it, but we know from the gospel record that there was a, a, a sequence of moments in time where at one second His body was lifeless in the tomb, and then the next second His body was alive coming out of the tomb. He went from death to life at a moment in time. Historical act. So the, a Christian, if we go back to how we started two weeks ago, what is a Christian? A Christian is one who, because of their union with Christ, have been effectually called, regenerated, giving a new, given a new heart and a new spirit, having that created in them by means of the effectual power of the life or of the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what the confession is saying. That's the terms defined. Secondly then, now let me explain what that means. Because there are a couple ways that we could understand that statement and the relationship between the power of Christ's death and resurrection and our sanctification. The first one I'm calling a secondary relation. We know that the death and resurrection of Christ are the culmination and confirmation of the success of His mediatorial work. That's how we know He did the work and the Father accepted His work. And we know that because of these, specifically His death, because of His death, Philippians 2, He has been highly exalted. Matthew 28, He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And Acts chapter 2, He has been given a special authority to give, dispense the Holy Spirit as He wills, which Spirit makes the effectual call of the Father work and does the work of regeneration in the believer. In other words, we could say without the death and resurrection of Christ, there would be no effectual calling and no regeneration because Christ is the one who gave of His Spirit to carry out that work, which authority He received in His death and resurrection. All of that's true. I don't believe that's what the confession's teaching here. And I don't believe that's what the Bible primarily teaches about sanctification in general or definitive. So here's, here's the direct relation. I believe there's a more direct relationship between the physical act of His death, the physical act of His resurrection, more than it just secured the benefits or the benefit of the application of it by the Spirit. I think it actually goes further. Remember two texts that I read to you from Hebrews. Hebrews 10.10. 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. There the text makes it clear at a, in a once for all moment in time act, something happened where the people of God were sanctified. Hebrews 13.12. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Historical act, 
never again to be repeated in order to sanctify the people. In other words, something happened outside of the city of Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha. Something happened that day that has a direct application to the present lives of saints living on this earth from that point and until he returns and even prior to that point. The question is, what was it? This is really important that we understand what happened on the cross. There are a lot of people who have a gospel where they, they have a man on the cross and they have an empty tomb and they have sins forgiven and they have eternal life. They have no idea how all of that goes together. How does any of this fit? Well, it, they, they just sort of they assume, well, God, can, God puts all of that together and somehow we benefit. But that's not good enough because the Bible actually tells us what happened. That brings us to Romans chapter 6. What happened when Jesus died? And I'm not going to give a full exposition of this chapter. I'm just, we're just going to walk through it and notice several things. This will require us to give special attention. So let's gird up our minds. I'm going to ask three questions. In this section of Scripture, what's the problem? What's the solution? And what does that have to do with sanctification? Definitive sanctification in particular. Number one, what is the problem? Notice chapter 6, verse 1, the context. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The context here is how the lives of saints ought to be lived out now that they are no longer in Adam but are in Christ. Now that they understand that even though sin came into the world, grace was manifested to cover that sin. How should they live? Should they go on sinning? Should they not go on sinning? In other words, the context is sanctification. He dealt with justification in chapter 4. How ought Christians live? How should we live? Now, standing over top of that controversy, this, this question brought in by this rhetorical questioner, Standing over top of that is the problem of sin, death, and the law. I just want you to notice several phrases. Notice the very last phrase in verse 6. The last three words. Enslaved to sin. Verse 9. Last phrase. Death no longer has dominion. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign. And then also in that verse, To make you obey. Verse 14, Sin will have no dominion since you are not under law. Verse 17, once slaves of sin. Verse 19, slaves to impurity and lawlessness. Verse 20, were slaves of sin. Verse 22, set free from sin. You could go all the way into chapter 7, verse 6, released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Now let me read all of those again really quickly and see if you can get an image in your mind of what, what Paul is thinking. 
enslaved to sin, death has dominion, sin reign, make you obey, dominion, under law, once slaves, slaves to impurity and lawlessness, slaves of sin, the law which held us captive. Or just singular words, enslaved, dominion, reign, obey, dominion, under, slaves, 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 captive. You see, this whole section is predicated on the reality of the power and dominion of sin, death, and the law. Now, that makes sense. It's really summed up in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. In other words, death has pain to it because of the presence of sin. If you take away sin, death's got no pain, no sting. God's law binds sinners to be held accountable to or for their sin. God's law demands justice. If you take away sins against the law, the law doesn't have a hold on you. That's the picture. The power of sin is the law. One time I, I illustrated this in, in, in this picture. The law is like the hand of a jailer who has you by the arm and will not let you go. Why? Because you've sinned. And the law says, you die. You're coming with me. It's the power of sin holding you and says, saying, you must die. If we go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. And then verse 21, as sin reigned in death. The picture here is of what John Murray calls the lordship of sin, of law, and of death. Now notice one more phrase, chapter 6, verse 7. One who has died has been set free from sin. Now if you've got an English Standard Version with the footnotes, you see the footnote at the bottom of the page that tells us that word, <clears throat> set free, is actually the word justified. Has been justified from sin. Now I believe the translators were trying to, trying to help us out a little bit here because Paul's not referring explicitly to the doctrine of justification, which he had been speaking of earlier in the book, <clears throat> but he is conveying sort of a, a similar idea. The end, of chapter, or the end of verse 6 says, "...so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been..." What's the opposite of enslaved? Set free. But the word is actually justified from sin. So, in other words, you've got this people who were enslaved, but something has happened to set us free from this power, this lordship of sin and law and of death. The judgment executed upon sin has taken place in order that we might be or enjoy emancipation from its thraldom. That's how Murray phrases it. Trying to, trying to maintain some of the legal sense of that term justified, but not going so far into the doctrine of justification, which Paul was speaking to prevalently in, in chapter 4. 
So what we're seeing is the reality of the power and bondage of sin, of death, and the law. The scriptures will speak of the kingdom of darkness. Kingdom is short for king's dominion. The king's dominion of darkness. And this is often epitomized in Satan's power, who is the prince of darkness, the god or ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. To quote Murray again, this lordship wielded by sin cannot be conceived of apart from the power of Satan and of the principalities of iniquity. Here's the point in Romans 6. Here's the point of the problem. The problem is sin. But it's not just sin in the abstract. And it's not just sinful actions that we commit. Oops, I sinned. That's not the problem. The problem is that sin came into the world and brought with it death as a consequence to a broken law. Sin is not some disassociated, unconnected idea. It's sin because somebody broke the law of God. It's connected to God somehow. And so all who are in Adam, we've said this many times, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. But it goes even further than that. It's not just, well, I guess we're sinners. The fact is that we are under the destructive power and kingdom of sin which leads to death. It has a dominion over us. Sin and death and the law in Scripture are seen as, when they all come together, controlling influences over the human race. Sin has entered and is covenantally conveyed to all of the offspring of Adam. And the demands of this law cannot be lessened because God doesn't change. In other words, we sin, but the very fact that it's called a sin means that we've fallen short of God's standard. We've sinned against God, and His law says, well, since you've sinned, you must die. So then it's a reverse. Death comes right back around, and we're locked in this stronghold. We're under the dominion of this power. We're bound at both ends. Our nature in Adam offers us no hope. Your, your nature's bound. You're locked in. On the other end of it, God's nature does not allow him to leave the guilty unpunished. The law cannot let go because God does not change. As Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's, it's seen as a dominion. You can almost picture it as a, a dark, hovering cloud encircling the globe where Satan rules and reigns and we are under this power. Now, this does not give us freedom to say, well, the devil's really getting after me today. You're giving into it. You're willfully sinning. But in the Scriptures, it's, again, it's epitomized in the power of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. That's the problem. It's not just that we sin. It's that we are sinners. But it's not merely that we're sinners. We're under the dominion of sin. We're locked in and there's nothing we can do about it. So then what is Paul's answer to the problem? Well, think about it. If you've got a, a ruling power in place and you want to overthrow that power, what do you do? You have to get a stronger power to come in, eliminate the enemy, neutralize the threat. That's what you've got to do. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So here's Paul's answer to the problem, which is actually Christ's answer to the problem. Elim eliminate the enemy and neutralize the threat. 
You do that by answering the problem created by the nature of men and also answer the problem created by the nature of God. In other words, you've got to fix man's nature, but you've got to satisfy justice. You can't, you can't fix the problem without answering both of these. So what has Christ come to do to eliminate the enemy? 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil there, again, the ruler over the kingdom of darkness. How does Christ defeat the devil? John 12, 31 and 32, Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. So the world is judged and the ruler of the world is cast out. When? When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. In his death on the cross, Satan is defeated. The enemy is eliminated through Christ's death on the cross. And how does this then neutralize the threat? Come back to Romans 6. Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Why? Since the resurrection. Now we read that, death has no dominion over Christ. And we say, well, did death ever have dominion over Christ? Yes, He was in the grave. He was born under the law and submitted Himself to our place. He died as a man. Verse 10, the death He died, He died to sin. He died to sin's power. Now, was that His own sin? Of course not. Then whose sin was it? It was ours. The death He died, He died to our sin. Not His. Ours. In order to neutralize the threat hanging over our heads by the law of God, the threat of death, Jesus Christ entered into our law place, stood in our place with the curse of our sins laid upon Him. And the law said the same thing to Him that it said to us, you must die. So what did He do? He died. He died to sin. He died to sin's power. The power of sin is the law. And the law said, you must die. And Jesus Christ said, well, fine. And he died. Now what does the law have to say? All right. That, that's all he had. That's all the law had was death. He died. The enemy is defeated in his death. The threat is eliminated in his death. Verse 10. The life he lives, he lives to God. Well, why does he get to come back to life? Well, he's free to go. He's already died the death. And so he's raised. His resurrection life is no longer under any restraint to offer anything to the kingdom of sin. Even as he walks out of the grave as mediator, walks out of the tomb in our place, as he's walking, death doesn't have any restraint upon him. He's already defeated the enemy. And so that life that he then lives, he can live in perfect freedom and service to God without any constraints upon him by the law. Sin has no place in him. The law can make no demands. Death has been conquered. The enemy has been defeated. The threat has been eliminated. 
So there's the problem. There's the answer to the problem. The question is, what does this have to do with definitive sanctification? How does all of this work of Christ relate to us? Go back to the confession. What is a Christian? They who are united to Christ. Through our union with Him, His work becomes the efficient cause or the virtue, the effective power of our sanctification. Definitive, and as we're going to continue to see, also ongoing sanctification. In other words, we have a new heart and a new spirit created in us. We get new life through the virtue of Christ's resurrection, but He can't, re can't be resurrected until He dies. He has to die first. The new life consists of the positive aspect, His resurrection, but the negative aspect has to come in in His death. We're united to Him in both, negative and positive. So let me show you that from Romans 6, verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Aorist, past tense, moment in time, event, we died. Not dying we died to sin. That's how Paul describes Christians. We are those who died to sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6, 5. We have been united with Him in a death like His. Romans 6, 6. Our old self was crucified with Him. Aorist, past tense, moment in time action. Passive, it happened to us. We were crucified with Him. Romans 6, 8, we have died with Christ. This is the application of our union with Him. When He died, He did it in union with a people. And so His death was carried out in our place. His death was our death. This is what Dad said last week from Galatians. His death was our death. I've been crucified with Christ. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I no longer live or the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, by union with Him. Romans 6, 3, we learn there that baptism is to be a picture of our union with Christ. It's a picture of what happened to us when we were first called into this union. Here's, this is the irony of it. We're called by the Father from death to life, but that calling from death to life is a calling to die first and then come back to life. That's what baptism is a picture of. Every time a person is baptized or we get to see a person baptized, we are reminded your old self died. It was buried with Christ and you've been raised to walk in newness of life. There's a down and an up. This is why sprinkling won't work. So there's my argument for credo-baptism. Because baptism is meant to teach us something. So there's the negative. When Christ died, we died with Him. But then there's also the positive. Romans 6, 4. Just as Christ was raised, we too might walk in newness of life. 6, 5. We're united with Him in a resurrection like His. 6, 8. We also live with Him. Romans 6, 11. We are alive to God. Or we are to reckon ourselves alive to God. How? In Christ Jesus. In union with Him, we are alive to God. So this is the other aspect of our union. When He was raised, He was raised in union with a people. His resurrection was carried out in our place. When He came out of the tomb, we came out, we came out of the tomb with Him. And there is a sense in which this work 
was completed in the historical acts of the death and resurrection of Christ. A sense. When he died, whatever was accomplished, the Bible teaches what it was, we've just covered it, whatever was accomplished, the virtue of that, the effectual power of that accomplishment was ours in that moment. He did it. It's done. When he was raised, whatever he accomplished in that resurrection, the power, the effectual power of it, the virtue of it is ours, accomplished in historical events and then applied in time through faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit. His death was a death to the power of sin. And so at the outset of our salvation, when we are in that moment baptized with Christ in His death, that death is a death to the power of sin. In a moment, we receive the virtue of that death to sin. He died to sin, therefore we died to sin. What's the point? When you become a Christian, sin has no power over you. None. None. The same way His resurrection was a resurrection unto life. The life He lives, He lives to God. No man had ever lived in that realm before. And He lived it. He established the realm of life. And thus we can receive new hearts and new spirits. And we are raised to walk in newness of life. Now let me read a paragraph. We are compelled to reach the conclusion that it is by virtue of our having died with Christ and our being raised with Him in His resurrection from the dead that the decisive breach with sin in its power, control, and defilement has been wrought. And that the reason for this is that Christ in His death and resurrection broke the power of sin triumphed over the God of this world, the Prince of Darkness, executed judgment upon the world and its ruler, and by that victory delivered all those who were united to Him, notice the language, from the power of darkness and translated them into His own kingdom. So intimate is the union between Christ and His people that they were partakers with Him in all these triumphal achievements and therefore died to sin, rose with Christ in the power of His resurrection and have their fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. As the death and resurrection are central in the whole process of redemptive accomplishment, so are they central in that by which sanctification itself is wrought in the hearts and lives of the people of God. So what are some of the implications of this? Number one, if Christ died and you've been united to Him by faith, you have died to sin. This is one reason, for me anyway, the historical narrative is so important. Luke 23, 55. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Now, some people might read that and say, okay, got it. They saw how his lifeless body was laid on the slab in that tomb. 
and they were so convinced of his death that he was actually dead that they came on the first day of the week to rub spices on his dead, lifeless corpse. They weren't confused about whether he was dead. John 19, 33 to 35, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. Just as certain as Jesus of Nazareth died on that cross and his lifeless body was laid in that tomb, so also are those who are united to him dead to sin. It does not have power. Sin has no power. You have been emancipated from its thraldom. Mary wept outside the tomb assuming somebody has ran off with his lifeless body. She knew he was dead. And yet we struggle over the same sins for months or even years as if that sin has some power over you. You are struggling with a powerless foe. This is why I very often ask myself, did he die? Well, yeah, he died. Have you been united to him through faith? Yes. That sin has no power over you. You are giving in to a powerless thing. It's not the sin anymore that's the problem. It's you. It's your not, what, putting to death that sin. If Christ died and you've been joined to Christ, you've died to sin. Secondly, if Christ was raised and you've been joined to Christ, then you have been raised to walk in newness of life. So then we ask, was Christ raised? Do we really believe? 1 Corinthians 15, 5 to 8, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul's saying you can go ask him if you want to. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, untimely born, he appeared also to me. Just as certain as Jesus Christ came out of that tomb, if you've been united to him, you've been raised to walk in newness of life, a life that is to be lived to God. Just as certain as we are that Jesus went from being a living man to a dead man, and back to a living man, that's how definitive the break is that the believer has had with sin and its power and its dominion. It is a break that is as stark as life and death, as death and life. There's no confusion as to whether somebody's dead or alive. They're either alive or they're dead. They're not partly dead. They're not partly alive. They're either dead or alive. Let me read one more paragraph here. We see, therefore, that the decisive and definitive breach with sin that occurs at the inception of Christian life is one necessitated by the fact that the death of Christ was decisive and definitive. It is just because we cannot allow for any reversal or repetition of Christ's death on the tree that we cannot allow for any compromise on the doctrine that every believer has died to sin and no longer lives under its dominion. Sin 
no longer lords it over him. To equivocate here is to assail the definitive of Christ's death. Likewise, the decisive and definitive entrance upon newness of life in the case of every believer is required by the fact that the resurrection of Christ was decisive and definitive. As we cannot allow for any reversal or repetition of the resurrection, so we cannot allow for any compromise on the doctrine that every believer is a new man. The, that the old man has been crucified, that the body of sin has been destroyed, and that as a new man in Christ Jesus, he serves God in the newness, which is none other than that of the Holy Spirit, of whom he has become the habitation and his body the temple. In other words, this is why it's important that we come back to the death and resurrection of Christ. It's because it's from these historical events that power comes to us. Paul says, you've got it. You died. You've been raised. Now reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. The problem is we don't reckon ourselves. This is why we deny any concept of a no-lordship salvation. That somebody can be, have Christ as Savior but not as Lord. That somebody can be a Christian and yet remain carnal. Somebody can be a Christian and yet never be sanctified. That there are some who will be sanctified and some who won't sanctify, will be sanctified. All of those things are a practical denial of one union with Christ. But worse than that, the historical events of the death and resurrection of Christ... Either he died and rose or he didn't die and rise. But if you've been united to him, Paul says, you've died. You died with him. You were raised with him. The old man was crucified with Christ. The new man was raised with Christ. And when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about the new man. We're not talking about somebody who's just trying real hard to get right. We're talking about a new man. What is a Christian? A Christian is a new man in Christ Jesus. And from that will issue this process that every believer who's truly been united to Christ, every true Christian, will be sanctified. Let's pray.